I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today we are talking about The Dark Knight, the 2008 film directed by Christopher Nolan, screenplay by Jonathan Nolan and Christopher Nolan. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Arand. Hello, everyone. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayetos. Hi. So this is obviously part two in our trilogy of episodes on the Dark Knight trilogy from Christopher Nolan. And it's the Dark Knight. So just, I feel like we have to, just have to say Knight. that again. <laughs> <laughs> and so there are so many things to talk about with this movie, obviously, from structural things to Heath Ledger as the Joker to just Batman and the moment, the cultural moment that happened when this came out. Mm-hmm. But I feel like I kind of just need to like please the gods or whatever that the gods of <laughs> the first viral video for lessons from the screenplay. I was like, where is, is he going with this sentence? Kind of uh, <laughs> the gods of YouTube. <laughs> yeah. Yes. The YouTube gods. There we go. The reason pretty much that we're all here, yeah. which is uh, the Dark Knight was the sixth video that I made for lessons from the screenplay. And it went super viral and has always been and will probably always continue to be the most popular video on the channel. And there's so many memories. I, I went back and rewatched it uh, before recording this. And it, I just have so many memories making that video. And a lot of formal things that I think still persist today came from that video. But also a lot of things have changed. Listening to my voiceover <laughs> is very painful. Uh, more, more so than normal. What was cool is just remembering how excited I was when I decided to do a video about the Dark Knight and the antagonist and finding all that information and just seeing it all come together and being really, really excited about it personally. And then seeing the world be excited about it also mm. was a, a very exciting experience. And I still feel that when I watch it ultimately. So that's awesome. Congratulations, Michael. Anyway, memories. Thank you. Thank you. But so the Dark Knight is really, really great. And <laughs> yes, yes, it is. You don't say. <laughs> As I was rewatching it, I tweeted something that was like, uh, The Dark Knight is maybe the best example of a movie that's greater than the sum of its parts. Mm. And I think a lot of people took that to be like a dig against the movie, which I don't quite understand. Well, it kind of sounds like a dig, like maybe its parts kind of suck. Right. But I think what you're saying is the parts are all good. The movie is even it's better. It's great. Yeah. Yeah. But I I do think that the movie has some weird parts. Like there are some goofy things, and we kind of talked about that in Batman Begins episode, where there there are these kind of weird goofy moments that in isolation I feel like are weird and not that strong, but it doesn't detract from the greater sum of what this movie becomes. So mm -hmm. uh yeah, I want to hear from you guys and also hear just what your guys' experience was watching this for the first time, because this is one of those movies that I remember very much where I was, like where I was sitting in the theater even mm -hmm. when I saw it. Brian, I want to hear from you. What what was your first experience with The Dark Knight? Well, first of all, let me say my last experience watching in a theater, which was the last movie I've seen in a theater. Uh, I saw it, yeah, on March 8th at a uh, movie palace downtown. And that was the last movie I saw in a theater. That's a really good um, last movie in a theater. Yeah, that's, that's, it definitely was. It's a good selection. But no, I... I yeah, as we as talked about last week, um, I was a fan of Batman Begins, and then I was definitely following Dark Knight through its progress and stuff. And then it was like Heath Ledger question mark, and then they released like the mm -hmm. first picture, and it was like, okay, Heath Ledger exclamation point, and <laughs> <laughs> which, which is funny because Interstellar, I had a kind of a similar thing where I was like Matthew McConaughey in a Kirsten Nolan movie, that's weird, and then True Detective and Dallas Buyers Club came out in like uh -huh. the time between the announcement and Interstellar. I was like, oh hell yes, this guy, yeah, yeah. 
But uh, but yeah, I think the only downside for me was just how much of the movie was released online. And because I have no chill, I just watched all of the like clips they released. There's like the entire <laughs> prologue and then like the uh, we are tonight's entertainment, you know, that whole um, like where's Harvey Dent scene and just a bunch of sequences that were released online. And I was like, well, I'm, of course, I'm going to watch these. I'm going to watch them many times. So when I saw the movie, I was like, yeah, I've seen 20% of this already, which is a weird feeling. That is dangerous to yeah. go down that rabbit hole of watching all the promotional content because you right. do start to puzzle together the film in advance in a way that takes away from that first experience. But yeah, I, I liked it a lot the first time and then saw it again in the theater within the next probably two weeks and uh, then was able to sort of take it all in because there's so much going on in this movie. So it was one of those second and third viewings is when I really went, okay, yeah, like this is, yeah, this is great. And I've seen it many times since and love it. Yeah. Awesome. Cool. Alex, what was your experience? Uh, So I think I saw it for the first time, actually, when I was visiting a home in Arizona, I saw it at like a, a bigger than average, but not IMAX theater. Like it was like a, <laughs> it was it was called the Cine Capri in Tempe, Arizona, and it has like a big screen, but it's like a wide screen, so it, you know it was a normal aspect ratio. Uh, so I saw it the first time, and I was mostly just overwhelmed, like because this movie has so much in it. I just remember kind of leaving the theater in a daze because I was just like I was. I remember I remember feeling like wow, that movie was way darker than I thought it would be. It took me to places that were they're doing this they're really doing this like that was my main impression was like holy crap like this superhero movie uh even beyond batman begins took went there with a lot of stuff that i didn't expect and so i just was kind of like overwhelmed and then i saw it again in imax Mm -hmm. and that's when like this movie had my heart forever Mm -hmm. because when it just cut to that opening scene and it's just like the full because also in Arizona, oh, they have yeah. like one of the bigger IMAX screens in Tempe. They have like the full like science center, like big square screen, not like a LIMAX screen. And <laughs> seeing it in that, I was just like, yes, this is like I've been waiting for like a blockbuster, you know, uh, narrative film to make use of this technology in this way. I've never seen this before. I'd never like there'd been movies blown up onto IMAX, like the Matrix uh like reloaded it was like re mm, like right. re-put into theaters in IMAX but it was just like blown up it wasn't mm. shot in IMAX and here was an opening sequence and then you know following that other key sequences that were truly shot in IMAX and it was just an incredible experience and so yeah that was that was when my my like brain was blown by just like this is a new type of cinematic experience that I didn't know I could have and I want more yeah yeah, yeah, absolutely. Oh, overwhelmed is exactly the word. <laughs> like I, oh boy. Um, so I actually don't remember my first time seeing this in theaters. I think I did see it twice, and then you know it's one of these movies where like I'm sure roommates or whoever had it on DVD, and we would like put it on and watch it. And the amount that this movie really, really upsets me in like a good way is a lot. <laughs> Like, yeah, I find this movie to be profoundly disturbing. Like, it's really upsetting to me to watch it. Every single one. And and I want to get into this more later, but every single one of the choices that the Joker forces people to make is horrifying. Like from the minute that he 
like walks on screen and, and he's, uh, you know, ki- like having every one of his minions in the bank robbery kill each other in this like domino effect very callously. And then it mm. goes into the scene where he's like, I, you could either hire me or I'm going to blow you all up in the like gangster scene. The mm-hmm. one that then I just didn't know what to do about is where he like has those guys try to fight it out with a pool cue, like a broken pool cue to figure out. We're having tryouts. Only one of you can be my next henchman. Aggressive <laughs> expansion. Everything about this just gets, has just gotten so thoroughly under my skin that like, while it's a movie that I couldn't possibly respect more, like it's an undertaking. It's like not to mm-hmm. be sat down and watched lightly. No, it is not. It is, it's a lot. Not at all. Um, <laughs> lots and lots of people die in incredibly horrifying ways. And just the like nail biting kind of like fist clenching experience of watching people make the most difficult choices they'll ever make in their whole lives is awful. And um, when I was watching it this time, I was both so impressed by it because I like had my analyst hat on because I was like, I have to podcast about this. I was both so impressed by it, but again, yet so overwhelmed by the psychological, like, power of it that I yeah. wanted to cry for most of the time that I was watching it. And I've seen this movie <laughs> <laughs> probably 12 times, you know? Um, uh, yes, I don't know how to convey fully the effect that this movie has on me, but I'm just, it's unbelievable. I don't know. I feel like it's it's weird because to me this movie like all those things you're saying are are completely true but also this is one of the most fun movies to watch for me mm. and like maybe this is also my like you know I I watched the girl with the dragon tattoo like for fun also so like <laughs> no. maybe I'm like twisted <laughs> right, right. in like and, interesting like, seven, ways like you right. love oh seven. my god seven is so good Whereas, like, like, I don't seven, know if I can watch seven yeah, no. yeah. <laughs> right <laughs> god it's so good I I remember. Again, this was one of those times where I remember where I was seated because there was all this hype and then, you know, just all the things that happened before the movie came out. And so it was like, okay, there's going to be another Batman movie. I kind of like Batman Begins. Let's see what this is about. And then, you know, the hype with the Joker and the honestly, the the intro scene to me still doesn't really work. The bank heist, like I think it's it's fine, but I feel like the rest of the movie is so much better. Like there's there's just mechanics happening that. I don't know. Something about it feels weird. The school bus pulls out and like falls into it. Like that's a little weird. Right. No other school bus driver was like, hey, a a school bus just pulled out of a bank covered in rubble. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. So like there's kind of weird things. But then I I, like I remember seeing the Joker come on screen for the first time when he when he comes into that room with yes. the mob bosses mm-hmm. and he makes the pencil disappear. Yeah. Like, hate it. I, I hate it. It's so good. Like I remember feeling like, oh, something special is happening. And then it was one of those experiences. <laughs> something especially <laughs> awful is happening. It's it's the it's the going there that I was talking about. Exactly. Where it's yeah. like, oh, this movie, it's like I'll let you finish, Michael. Sorry. But basically, it's the Joker from the beginning is like the most ruthless, unpredictable, like kind of terrifying antagonist. And it's they're not going to like play around like. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. No. And, yeah. it, and it doesn't stop. Like, he, no, at right. no it point builds. is the Joker less than perfect in this movie. Mm-hmm. And that's just yeah. amazing. Yeah. And so, I mean, so we can talk about the Joker. There's also kind of getting at that that darkness thing, though, and, and the disturbing aspect of it. It was kind of only later, uh, you know, there was 
again, so much hype. I remember seeing it at IMAX and being at the, the Sony Metreon in San Francisco. Uh, and it was just like at the Saturday after it came out, we we're like, let's go see it again. And just like swarms of people. Like I'd never seen that many people in a theater just like hyped about a thing. But then weeks afterward, reflecting on it and and talking to some friends, I realized uh, that it's very much like a post 9-11 movie. Like yeah. it's a movie about mm. terrorism. And yeah. I think that's so much of what makes it disturbing and, and uncomfortable is because it forces both Batman and the audience to think about these choices that are unthinkable choices and having to wrestle with what do you do in, yeah. in these impossible situations. And it's, yeah, it's really, it's just thematically and cinematically amazing. Right. The idea of the Joker isn't, you know, you don't get a nice backstory. You don't get like, he just wants to watch the world burn, like that kind of thing is uncomfortable. It, it's not the thing that we are, that we're, you know, that we want to hear. Um, and yeah, so Trisha, what you were saying, like, it's just, it's an undertaking. When we talked about our favorite movies of the the decade, y- you know, your rubric, Trisha, was like, I just want to watch these movies all the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, and for me, it was more like, what is my experience uh, watching them? And I, I had the same experience recently playing The Last of Us Part Two, which was just like, I'm so upset, but then also like so emotional and like, positive and negative ways and i just feel like more it's like such an emotional undertaking but it's so much more unforgettable for me than for a movie that's just like a lot of fun to watch you know uh and obviously like there are movies that are like shawshank redemption is a good example of a movie that's like it's emotional and it's like long but it's but it's just like enjoyable to watch in a way that something like seven is not or the dark knight is not um but i michael's shaking his head But I do just appreciate. Yeah, I'm not saying I'm not saying like you can't like you can watch movies in like two different ways. Almost you can just sort of put it on and like look at the colors and then you can actually like sit down and let yourself be overwhelmed by all of the all of the like disturbing stuff that's going on and be like, okay, like I think Seven's a beautiful movie. And that's a movie I feel like I could watch all the time, too. But like, again, it's not fun in the way that we are using that word no but uh but anyway point of all of what i'm saying is that like i do i do appreciate movies that can do that even if they are movies that you want to watch all the time they're movies that when you do sit down with them they are going to take you somewhere that is just incredibly powerful i will say about the dark knight i it is a movie i could watch all the time because Mm -hmm. it's it's such a ride i think it's it's kind of the beginning of a thing we've been talking about a lot of just this Christopher Nolan momentum <laughs> that is so unstoppable. I mean, it's in Batman Begins as well, and it's in all his films. But this film in particular sustains like a continuous momentum. Oh, yeah. For like, I mean, how long is it? Is it it's over two and a half two hours, and a half right? Hours, I think. Yeah, or about that. Yeah. Um, it never lets up. There's never there's never a moment where you can really breathe or you kind of feel like, oh, it's kind of slowing down or it, it's it's relentless. And it's so it, what's impressive to me is that the stakes and the challenges are just so continuously ratcheted up so brilliantly that it works like you are on the edge of your seat because it actually is getting worse and you actually don't know how they're going to get out of this next situation the joker is creating and to sustain that for that long uh is just unbelievable and so that's why for me it is an enjoyable watch even though there's some legitimately disturbing stuff in here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just thrilled by the experience of a thing like keeping me going for that long. <laughs> you know, like right. I, I kind of can't believe it. 
Well, yeah, he does this thing. Nolan does this thing in the first 20 minutes that I, I sort of refer to as like incidental filmmaking. I don't know, or incidental cinematography, where it's like the camera is like panning past a building and then you go inside the building and two characters are talking and then they say three lines to each other and then we cut to now we're in a different town or part of Gotham uh -huh. and like there's two other characters and the camera's just and the camera just sort of keeps moving and it never lets you so it's not in a two and a half hour movie there's not like well I can go to the bathroom now because everything is kind of settled right um, and obviously there are longer scenes that are more settled scenes in the movie there are moments of respite but after the the heist there's about i would say 20 minutes where it just keeps going and just keeps introducing here's all the characters here's where they are here's a few lines and we're just going to keep going 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 and it weirdly like the cinematography the way it keeps moving like that helps keep it from feeling like overwhelming because they're just like it's like i'm on a train and i'm just watching these like little scenes <laughs> right because right. there's a disjointed version of this where it's because i i have seen films that kind of try to just have this like relentless pace Right. And I tune out most of the time mm -hmm. because it's like, well, I just I'm kind of exhausted by this. And I think this movie, by the end, you know, pushes my limits. Uh, you know, like when it gets to like Batman using sonar vision, like and it's so disorienting. <laughs> uh -huh. That's usually where I'm like, OK, like my brain is starting like my head's hurting a little bit now. Right. Like get out of the sonar vision, please. <laughs> but besides like that little qualm, like most movies that try to be this relentless, I think I would have fatigue i would tune out i'd be kind of just not into it and somehow because the cinematography the editing the music i'm with it which is just i just can't believe that he pulled that off i fully agree and i think part of it is exactly the filmmaking that you just touched on bry which is the the movement of the camera so if you think about that opening shot even just the opening shot of it that's that coming in. in on the building yeah. oh my god yeah but then the way that the camera is continuously sort of like pushing in uh, it, like there's so many just like tracking shots mm -hmm. in on things um you know and then sideways and everything as you were just talking about i think it's that i think it's also that the stakes always feel real and grounded yep so like even as things are going along and as you're saying alex they're like ratcheting up they're getting worse and worse they never feel too big right. they always feel infinitely possible and i will never ever Forgive Christopher Nolan for killing Rachel Dawes in the middle of this movie mm. in that exact way that he does. I, I, it made me so mad when I first saw it because it wounded me so deeply. But the way that her hair blows right in front of her face. And she's about to start saying so something. Good. like yeah. it's, it's so maniacal. It's so, it, it's so brutal, which is what mm -hmm. is great about right. it. It's just, it's just so brutally honest. And, uh, it's I like, mean, yeah. we've seen a lot of people die at that point. Like a lot of of characters that have lines that have names we've seen them die the joker kills them but then that one is the one that that really i think you need it for the stakes in the second half yep. you need to know that this is real people really close to you the audience and close to bruce are potentially going to die here there's like not everybody is getting out of this in fact Maybe not a lot of people are getting out of this. And I think that's what keeps me hooked into the movie. I mean, I also am just too empathetic, which is why <laughs> I just like, <laughs> which is why I'm, I like can't from the very first scene. Um, but especially that, that second half when like even to the moment where uh, Harvey is holding Gordon's son, I'm like, right? this kid could die. This mm -hmm. kid could die. 
because this movie didn't save me from anything else. Right. So right. why would it save me from having to watch this? Right. Like the Joker is the ultimate antagonist. Like it's yes. it's just yes. true yes. because it's you know it's so the movie is relentless, like you guys are saying, but it's not you know there's there's dynamics which Trisha you always point out like the, it's not just beating over the head constantly. It's mm-hmm. always moving somewhere and things are getting seeming like they're getting better and then get worse and back and forth. Um, but the Joker is dangerous in a way that means he's completely unpredictable. Like his thing is like, you don't know what he's going to do next right? because he doesn't have a plan. So Mm -hmm. the relentlessness and the, you know, the momentum that the film has, it doesn't wear on you because you, you don't know where you're going. Sometimes you just see where it's all going to end. And it's like, okay, just let's just get there. Then finish the final battle. Like, punch each other some more okay like <laughs> right and i i think you you don't know that with the joker and that's like his whole thing and then i think the filmmaking on kind of a meta level adopts some of that jokerness where mm-hmm. the filmmaking doesn't mm-hmm. let you feel safe mm-hmm. either and that that right. moment with rachel is such a great moment where the the film tricks us like we're with batman we think batman's going to save rachel i mean unless you're some of the people in the youtube comments but the wrong the, the, the film clearly states that like batman is going to see rich and then he says rachel right like when he asks where he's going right yeah. it's, it's very clear so the movie tricks us so we're completely with batman like we feel like we're at the whim of whatever the joker is going to be doing and then also the the other meta thing i love about the film is that it it has this amazing false ending that I completely yep. buy where after all of that, after Rachel dies, it's it's kind of like the midpoint, but it could also be kind of the crisis. Like it comes structurally yeah. in this weird place where mm-hmm. it could be the end of a movie. Like, mm-hmm. and the, the filmmaking is treating it like that. The way the camera's moving, the music, all of it is sort of signaling like Batman didn't win this time, but next time maybe he will. And Harvey mm-hmm. Dent's going to be waiting for him. And so I remember being in the theater thinking, wow, okay, I'm so ready for the next movie when it's him versus Two-Face. And then the movie keeps going. And so mm-hmm. there's there's like meta filmmaking things happening that's amplifying the insanity and unpredictability of the Joker. And it just all comes together in such an amazing way. It's just too good. <laughs> I will say this, though, about the Joker as a character really quick, which is he is still a character. And by that, I mean, he still has a goal Mm -hmm. and he pursues his goal in a logical fashion. So it's like his psychology is not something that we relate to, but it is a psychology. There is an internal logic to it. And as you pointed out in the video when you made it, Michael, he's competing for the same goal as Batman. As much as he loves to insist he doesn't have plans, he definitely has a lot of he, plans. He has to do a lot of planning for Elaborate this stuff. Elaborate plans. Yeah. He has to buy makeup. Yes. Like, there's a whole... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot going on. He's got that nurse's uniform. He had that wig already. You yeah. know, he's got I plans. He's got a lot of props. Yeah, handy. Yeah, yeah so many props. So, but, but that's the thing is that, like, I think that because so much of who Joker is is, like, shrouded from the characters like shrouded from Batman and therefore shrouded from us. They're able to sell us on the idea that, and Joker always is insisting that he is chaos. He's an agent of chaos. He doesn't have plans. 
He's like a dog chasing cars. He definitely has plans. He definitely has goals. He pursues them in a logical fashion. He is a character, and that's why he's a good antagonist. If he were truly lawless in the way that he claims to be, this movie actually would not be fun right. because he would fail a lot. Sure. <laughs> like, that's the thing. His plans go off perfectly because they are planned. So, and if they weren't planned, he would be constantly failing and this movie wouldn't be fun or it wouldn't be the ride that it is. Right. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I agree with that, but I think that what makes it terrifying as uh, from our viewpoint as like civilians in the world is I, I might have mentioned this before, but there's a villain on the show, Luther, who chooses who he's going to kill by like rolling a die and like then like just going like, oh, I rolled this die. I'm going to a gas station. I rolled this guy. Die, I'm going to use a hammer. And like so like just random people die because mm-hmm. he um, because that's how he's choosing it. And it's like, yeah, he has a plan, but anybody is susceptible. And I was thinking and like, sure, apologies. It's going to get like dark for a second. But like when you hear someone was killed down the street from your house because they got in an argument at the convenience store, you're like, oh, well, I could just not get in an argument and I'll be fine. But then when you hear on the other side of the country, that like someone just opened fire on people like out of nowhere. That's terrifying because those people just it just happened, right. you know, and I think it's random. Right. And I think that's what makes the Joker scary is that people like the people on the ferry, for instance, are just at risk for no reason. Like they're not they're not trying to stop him, you know, and I think that's the scariest thing. I think that goes back to the cultural kind of resonance of the mm-hmm. film mm-hmm. is just exactly. yeah, it's it's just this you know, early 21st century and kind of still just like unease about like, where is the world going? Like, how do you fight a thing like, quote unquote, terrorism, which is Mm -hmm. just kind of this like idea Mm -hmm. or just, you know, and if there's if it's not involving a state or like state actors who are like acting in accordance with like self-interest or some logical goal, how do you fight that? And that's there's that's explicitly debated in this movie is just we can fight the mob. They just want money. But like, how do you fight somebody whose only goal is essentially to cause chaos? <laughs> Cause mm-hmm. there's, that's, that's a very intangible thing. You can't like right. cut off their money supply that they don't care about money. It dovetails so nicely with the kind of theme that was set up in Batman begins where Batman begins is all about fear, right? As they say mm-hmm. many, many times. Mm-hmm. And this is kind of an interesting evolution of that, of like, not just fear for you as a person, but as like a society, what do we do? when there is fear and and i think what's also disturbing about the joker is that it's as you were saying trisha there's real psychology happening and it's just it's it's the psychology of someone that isn't bound by the societal norms that we kind of assume everybody has right and he's like right in a lot of ways like right one of my favorite things is his speech to harvey where he says you know it's all part of the plan like if a bunch of like gangbangers die or like soldiers get killed like no one freaks out because that's part of the plan we as a society have right we're used to that it's like oh yeah no that's normal those people are like it's normal when they die but these other people even if it's 
less people and numbers or, you know, whatever ways we want to try to quantify or qualify these things. One tiny right. little mayor. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Then everyone loses their minds. And that's like, that's true. It's an, it's a weird part of human society. And it's, I think that's just why another reason why the Joker is so disturbing and affecting. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's like any good antagonist, if they have an ideology or just like a philosophy of life that has a point to it or has some truth in it, that's always more powerful than just like, I'm just genuinely crazy and nothing makes sense. Like mm-hmm. right. the Joker actually is holding a mirror up to society and saying like, would any of you really be as good as you all purport to be if all this, all this safety mm-hmm. you've put around yourself was stripped away? And his whole plan is really like, what a brilliant superhero movie, bad guy like evil genius plan is is this intangible thing of what if I cause chaos in the right places in this metropolis to just show everybody who they really are, which is like when the chips are down, you're all going to turn on each other. You're all going to rip each other apart because you're just barely holding together this kind of farce of a civilized society. Mm-hmm. Um, right. What, what a brilliant, like what a much more chilling and relatable and powerful plan than like I randomly want to blow up this place for some reason. The sort of Lex <laughs> Luthor, like I'm going to buy a lot of real estate just so you wait. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and this was also amongst the time where there was a lot of just blue laser beams or like superhero sure. movies. The villains just had like there was a big blue laser that they're going to shoot at the world and it's going to be bad and you got to <laughs> right. stop them from turning on the blue laser. Yeah. That reminds me of what I was talking about in Batman Begins, which is that these are wisely scaled. Right. Right. They're about Gotham very specifically. And uh, you point that out to Michael in the video about the Dark Knight, which is that the climax is about a couple hundred people on the ferry, really. Like, and that's a scale choice, right? Where it's like, here are the lives at risk. They're very contained. We can see them. But I just wanted to emphasize the reason I bring that up about the Joker is from a character design point of view, which is I feel like when we are designing our antagonists, we are attracted to psychologies that are dramatically different from our own. And that's a good thing, right? Where we think like, okay, well, I have this value system. What about somebody who um, has a dramatically different value system? And if they fully committed and believed in their own dramatically different, perhaps incomprehensible to me, but what would the logic behind that look like? That is a really great approach to antagonist design. Mm -hmm. What is not a great approach to antagonist design is trying to throw a value system out the window. Your character still has to have a value system. Right, Mm -hmm. right. Like, and it's still, like, your character, your antagonist still has to have a goal. Take yourself to a psychological place of someone who's really different than you, but someone who still believes in something. And what the Joker believes in is horrifying and it's chaos. And he like wants to, he believes the worst about everybody. And he wants to show the world that everybody deep down is as terrible as he is, or like experiences the darkness that he believes that they do. Like that's his ideology. It's awful, but it is logical. It does follow an internal logic. And I think that's actually where villains are compelling. Not when they're just acting out at random because you think it would be cool to see them do it. Sure. That said, there are movies like Jaws and Alien and Night of the Living Dead. Ooh, yes, which are right. good. <laughs> <laughs> which are good movies where the villain's only goal is just to eat or kill. Uh, because those aren't people. Well, exactly, and I th- and it's I think monster monster movies, right? And I just I just wanted yeah. to clarify that like that I I right. absolutely agree with everything you said. But then the reason those movies are compelling is because 
then the movie will explore theme through the characters and, you know, through or like through zombies mm -hmm. and what they represent in our society, you know, that kind of thing. Right. right. Um, so, yeah, just wanted to point that out. I recently rewatched Twister. Twister is also a great <laughs> like disaster movies are also a great example of forces we right. actually can't understand that don't have a psychology, which is always those are fun, but a different. I kind mean, there of is that moment where the the tornado is like explaining its plan <laughs> when he has everyone tied up. Is that no? Maybe that's not Twister. Um, <laughs> I do have a question about Joker, which is what would happen if nobody got up to stop him when he said, "How about a magic trick?" <laughs> Would he just have to like do a magic trick then? <laughs> I, They'd be like, ah, oh, by right. all means, go it's, ahead. It's one of my pet peeves <laughs> in movies where like a line, like character A will say something, right. character B will do something, character A will say something. And like the only way the character A's two things work is if like B does the exact right thing in that moment, you know, and it comes up again in Dark Knight Rises. This one drives me crazy, which is it, during the opening sequence where Littlefinger's like, if I take that mask off, will you die? And he says, it would be extremely painful. And he says, you're a big guy. And he goes, for you. And it's right. just like, first of all, it's like he's doing stand-up in a weird way. Yeah. But, <laughs> but but it's also just like, he's like, I really hope he says something, because otherwise this first right. line doesn't make any sense. I'm doing a bit here. Yeah. Right. Go along with me. <laughs> so I feel like I've, I've brought this up before. I think when we did our Inception live stream for patrons, which people can go watch. But I think I, think I brought up this idea of how how I categorize films versus movies Ooh. and that they feel like slightly different things to me. And I feel like what you're saying, Brian, kind of gets at the distinction for me. Whereas I feel like all of these Christopher Nolan movies are movies for that reason. Like their their primary goal is to be entertaining and fun and they will throw reality out the window for a cool moment like that if it helps create the the fun experience of, you know, the the blockbuster thing. And I feel like a film for me has to have a little bit more believability, for lack of a better word, or just, you know, the the suspension. Verisimilitude. Yeah, there, there's there like a, a different level of suspension of disbelief mm -hmm. that's required for a mm -hmm. quote unquote film or movie in my head. And so I think that's, I think what's cool about Christopher Nolan movies is they have so many hallmarks of quote unquote films, but there's they're applied to the movie thing. So they're just like really, really good movies. <laughs> well, I because th I, cause I think <laughs> if, extrapolating out from like that small moment with the pencil, like most of Joker's plans like shouldn't like work out. Like like the time, the timing no. of things it has right. to be so perfect. People have to do the right thing at the right time to like make it happen. So yeah, most of his plans are like insanely complicated and probably couldn't be pulled off. But we love to watch it and it's so much fun to see them get it revealed. So like who cares? You know? Right. I'm not <laughs> complaining. It's just yeah. one of those funny things where I was just like, what would if I just I like only thought about that the last time I watched the movie. I'm like, what would happen if he would they're just like, okay, we'll watch your magic trick. And he's like, I I real I need a volunteer, I guess. I, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would argue that of all Christopher Nolan's movies, this one maybe exists at the intersection of film and movie. Mm -hmm. If you, I don't make that distinction. I don't know how useful it is, right. but Agreed. I mean, you do, you, man. <laughs> uh, but like, I think it's useful. We'll talk about it more later. I do think there's something here that is pushing the boundaries of like a popcorn blockbuster yeah. into a place of mm -hmm. art, potentially. Like it is really trying to, comment on something much bigger than itself 
um, or speak to something deep in in like human psychology and in you know society and sort of uh, particularly Western and in this case American um, society. And so I would say. I don't know. This is perhaps a film. And at least it is for me, you know? It's a spectrum, too. I don't think it's black and white. Well, that's, <laughs> that's the thing. It's, it's impossible to, like, find some line between these two arbitrary words that mean the same damn Seriously. thing. Like, if you're like, <laughs> Don't they well, know? I, I know what Michael means, though, because I think, like, so he, when I was watching it, and I've thought this before, and it's been said before, but this really just feels like an adult crime thriller that mm-hmm. happens to that oh, happens yeah. to have a superhero in it. What's interesting about the film is that maybe a straight up, like, you know, Oscar, you know, Silence of the Lambs, like, just like crime thriller might not be able to get away with as many like kind of quirky loopholes in the Joker's plans or like mm-hmm. these kind of like skipping a logical step here and there. Whereas the Dark Knight feels free to kind of like breeze through those moments. Mm-hmm. Like if the Godfather had magic and like, you know, Corleone magically knew where someone was going to be and like was able to like send a bomb through the mail to arrive there. I feel like that would break something in the Godfather. Mm-hmm. Continue. <laughs> anyway, but but I do think the movie leans so much like like I was watching the just the first kind of like third of the film and most of it just felt like. It didn't feel like a quote-unquote superhero movie at all. It, it, like the way it was shot, the scenes are taking place in like a DA's office, and uh, you know these like a restaurant and a fundraiser for a political candidate. Like it felt like a really good, like adult crime drama, and mm-hmm. and like we don't get many of those, and we definitely don't get those with like a huge budget, um, like a massive budget. Yeah. And it's like how cool we like Christopher Nolan managed to get so much money to basically make like an adult movie <laughs> which we just don't get yeah. very many of you know with with this kind of uh release yeah, and, and budget yeah well i love that this movie places a lot of emphasis on batman as a detective because mm-hmm. batman has always been a detective mm. you know we were talking in in our last um podcast about batman has skills and he has a ton of money but one of his other like powers from the comic books is that he's a great detective. And so this movie shifts into Batman is going to detect some stuff <laughs> and I love those I love those sequences where he like gets the bullet out of the wall and like it doesn't make any sense but I love it. Listen. Yeah, wait, like like, like what is even going on? Right. Movie not film. Movie not film. Hold on cuz it's like so he gets the brick he gets some other bricks that ha- <laughs> don't have bullets in them. He then takes a big, a big loud shoots gun and them. shoots bullets into mm-hmm, them. Mm-hmm. Like he just chooses some bullets at random. I don't know. He cho- he shoots some bullets into it, and then they analyze the way those bullets broke apart. But there's one brick that's like the right one. He compares bricks before he analyzes. Okay, it. so like I don't. Yeah, <laughs> was it the same bullet or different bullet? I don't know. And then they put the recreation based on the reality of the bullet explosion and it shows a fingerprint you've got it and the joker knew he would do that because the fingerprint is planted to send him to the place the joker wants him to go that is correct (laughs) listen okay it's a movie (laughs) it's a movie fine what i'm saying is i like the detecting i like it when batman is it's really fun to and you in, in the video michael you compared it to seven of course um which is like 
We are actually, there are be- trail, there's a trail being left here. And we're going to follow the clues, which is like classic crime detective fiction kind of stuff. And it's really enjoyable to watch like Batman's skills of like, I'm going to go to this apartment. What I need is the ones that are overlooking the park, right? Like seeing him put pieces together or like overlooking the parade, seeing him put the pieces together in his brain of, um, well, this thing leads me to conclude this about the Joker. And like, I think he does at one point manage to find something out about the Joker that the Joker hasn't anticipated. Am I wrong about that? Let me go back through this incredibly complicated plot in my brain. <laughs> I think ultimately the Joker knew everything and everything was part of this plan. I think. Every bit of detecting that Batman does? I think so. I mean, the only thing that doesn't go right for him is the fairies don't blow each other up. Right. I think that's the first time. Which he expects to happen at exactly midnight somehow. He's like, he's like, and here we yeah. go. I do also believe like <laughs> that is maybe the most uh objective problem i have with the movie objective maybe isn't the right word but the we're we're talking about all these things uh, where it's this adult movie it's bringing in these like heavy themes and it's uh you know dealing with how do we deal with terror and like asking these really big questions and it kind of doesn't really answer them and like i can't really hold that against the movie because how do you answer that right but it is interesting to me that like like neither of the fairies blow each other up, and it's I think kind of a... a fairy tale ending. Boo! No, you really bittered up this conversation. I know. <laughs> but and and even leading up to that, I feel like there's interesting commentary on you know just obviously the selection of one fairy is full of like prisoners, like bad uh-huh. people, right. quote unquote, and the rest are like the good people. And then there's commentary on democracy of like we Let's should take put a this vote. to a vote. Yeah. And, yeah. yeah. There's no time for a vote. But but it's just interesting that, that <laughs> neither one of them blow up the other. I mm. think that's that's a a bold statement from the movie that feels counter to a lot of what else is in the movie, I feel. Sure. Yeah, it's it's very optimistic in a way. Like the, the screwed up thing, the most upsetting thing about the movie is how optimistic like the nicest thing about the movie feels too optimistic, which is that like nobody blows each other up you know right. which is just like right. hurts um but in terms of what questions are answered and not answered what i do appreciate is obviously part of the theme of this film is film is uh that <laughs> um is that like the truth is is ugly you know sometimes and and like like we said like mm-hmm. you know we don't have a backstory some men just want to watch the world burn and then what is explored in the second half of the movie is that the is then hiding the truth so in the same way alfred Mm -hmm. hides the truth about rachel from bruce bruce slash batman decides to hide the truth about harvey from gotham and that's also really challenging and upsetting in a way where like i've always been a person where i'm like everyone should know the truth about everything that's just how the world should work and this movie's like but would people just be better i mean forget about rachel and bruce because like he'd get over it but like the the fact that basically if Gotham knew Harvey was this villain, they would just completely go to hell. Whereas if they can, and as we see in Dark Knight Rises, like eight years of he is our hero, he is our white knight. Um, and he hit the, the image, the legend of um, Harvey Dent has allowed us to 
to be optimistic about the world and that kind of thing. But Batman is the bad guy, you know, where we're going to chase him. We don't like him. And the fact that the movie's just like, we need to lie to a society in order to, uh, in order to bring about peace. And like, that's screwed up and sort of horrifying. And, but like the movie sells the hell out of it in a way that I'm not comfortable with. Right. I mean, it, it's, if it's yeah. commenting on politics and mm-hmm. social issues, it's, it's ultimately concluding uh, the truth is so horrifying <laughs> that we may need to actually essentially have prop up a false like protagonist for society and also an antagonist and like have this myth to hold it all together because the truth is so horrifying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Well, and Nolan has always been interested in like storytelling which is lying right like that's because that's the thing at the end of the day is that we tell stories um because they make us feel better right about the world right like even if even if they have a downer ending or whatever there's this the narrative structure is designed to create closure and yeah. meaning even if it's not a happy closure or meaning and nolan has always been in, in that like all about you don't want to know the truth i'm gonna say we should mention Patron exclusive mm-hmm. episode for this month is the prestige. We're gonna have lots of thoughts about that. that <laughs> How about several magic tricks? And, and so, I I really love that that is being explored here. Where you know, essentially, what they decide to do is create a, a mythos around Harvey Dent as a hero, um, because it makes Gotham better. Like believing in the stories that we tell makes us better people and maybe that's why we tell them and maybe that's why it's actually important to keep telling them um and and also maybe Mm. there is no such thing as a hero right and we're all flawed and um like that's not really pretty not really pretty to hear because i feel like that's kind of the joker's point but but it's as you say in the video two sides of the same coin and and i feel like it's you know i think that's what lends the adultness to it is yeah. that reality is complex and sometimes we need lies or stories, however, whatever word we want right. to call them, to shape our belief systems. And sometimes it's better to have a good story to shape beliefs than the upsetting truth. And I feel mm-hmm. like, you know, if you look into any figure in history too deeply, it'll shatter <laughs> very quickly the stories that have been created around them. Mm-hmm. And so I, I do think that's what's so fascinating about this movie is that it, it's, as you're saying, Trisha, directly interfacing with that idea of what are the stories we tell ourselves? And if we can't always maybe know the truth, can we at least create the best stories possible to mm-hmm. to encourage the behavior that we all agree is, is the moral kind that we want? Well, as... um. Yuval Noah Harari says, the author of Sapiens, he says, you know, society needs useful fictions. Yeah. You know, what we, we need useful fictions that we can all kind of agree to believe in to just function and and kind of we're all going to agree to this fiction and operate by that so we can like have a cohesive anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think thematically, ultimately, the movie does rebuke the Joker's point of view, where even though he did successfully turn Harvey Dent, you know, and and there's like much to do about how great he was. Everyone's like, he was the best of us. (laughs) Was he? Um, I mean, he's like threatening threatening people pretty quickly in the movie with death. Like, yeah, fairly early on. Yeah. Like, like, yeah, it was like the second 
like main like assassination attempt harvey's like already kidnapping somebody and like torturing them that's another kind of like (laughs) fundamental problem i have is that i don't feel like harvey is set up super clearly that i buy his deterioration into two-face because it does happen pretty quickly once it once it starts also can we just talk about their their choice to like make two-face essentially like half literal zombie like flesh falling off <laughs> like the how, I mean, like, you have to you have to play tr- tribute to the character i mean but like is that how it always has been represented because wasn't there like the you know the not batman forever batman forever version where it's tommy it, lee jones yeah tommy lee jones it's like acid on his face or whatever isn't it more like just heavily scarred I, I think it's interesting i like the visual they chose to go with it's like really shocking and kind of cool yeah. mm-hmm. I, I just found it was interesting more times i rewatched the more i thought that the actors playing the scenes off of him we're not told how shocking it was going to look because people right. are surprised to see his face. Right. But like if I saw somebody's face where like it's literally just muscle tissue and like bone, I wouldn't be able to like carry a co- normal conversation with them. I'd right. be like, get to a hospital immediately. I can't <laughs> like, like what, how are you even walking around? Like, <laughs> I love the way his, face is introduced in that scene yeah. with yes. Gordon where every time he starts it's to scary. turn the camera cuts away and then mm-hmm. finally he like turns full um and and I do love that it is this sort of like CG makeup hybrid or it's like mostly CG but I'm like I don't even understand what I'm seeing and like how it was done and I don't want to like look up some behind the scenes I just I'd never want to know <laughs> I just I love how how real it looks in a, in like such an upsetting way. But I also think that part of the idea with Two-Face usually as a, as a comic character is this thing happens to him and then he becomes like a crime boss. So he like makes the choice to go buy suits that are half and half and all this right, kind of right. stuff. <laughs> right. But in order to sell that in this Nolan verse, you have to basically say, half of him got completely burnt up and, and is horrifying. And like, he just, stayed that way because he's not going to go take a shower now like he's going to go on his you know. oh, God. Oh, that was so painful just to visualize for a moment oh. <laughs> he, he like he like drinks some juice and when, when he when he drinks that like the he, drinks the liquor, he wipe, doesn't he oh, wipe off some yeah, flesh he, does, he, he does. like reveals some bone right yeah, yeah. it's so no, gross it's super disturbing but but basically Basically, just like what these villains are in this trilogy is sort of like Nolan saying, how can we make a realistic version of this comic character? You know? Yeah. Anyway, I love the design of Two-Face. My point was, just really quickly, (laughs) was that I think that ultimately the movie does rebuke the Joker, though, because the people in the fairy don't blow each other up. Like, I think that is where it kind of lands on, like, the Joker's point is... The Joker's point is everyone could be as bad as me if you put on enough pressure. Every, like an ordinary citizen will murder anybody anytime if you really pressure them correctly. Like everyone is corruptible, even the incorruptible Harvey Dent. But he like targets Harvey Dent and there's a lot that goes into like ultimately corrupting him, which is like maybe or maybe not believable. But the scenario on the ferry, I think is where the movie lands thematically ultimately about like Humans are capable of making a moral choice. We are capable of laying hold, even under extreme pressure, of like the better, our better angels, right? Like, and I think for me, when the Joker loses, it's not when he gets, you know, strung up by his ankles, um, you know, and outside of that building, it's when those fairies don't blow up. And so I ultimately, I think that, you know, as dark as the ending is, 
not that dark. It's still this useful fiction. Mm -hmm. The meta disturbing thing is that that's the least realistic part of the movie. (laughs) Right. In some ways. Like, Like, it's almost impossible to imagine that they would get away with the circumstances that allowed those fairies not to blow up. Like, that seems like a miracle, you know, and not the logical outcome. Like, I'm almost curious to, like, go around and, like, ask what you guys... Like what everyone would do given that situation? Oh my god! If, if oh, you're on, okay. the on the no, thing. we are not no? going to do okay. that. All right, we're not going <laughs> to do that. Way too dark. Fine. Channeling the Joker over there. <laughs> yeah, I thought I thought Michael was about to say like, so everyone look under your chairs right now. <laughs> oh, <laughs> dude, there's a button. <laughs> oh God. What? Because I I agree. Where like I it it does feel very optimistic to me, and I kind of don't buy it. But the way I, I met a game, like what I would do in that situation is, first of all, I would hope that I would just be a good person and not want to, you know, blow up other people. And I think I, I, I love what, you know, the, the one, um, you know, inmate does the pr- ultimately. The prisoner, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, where he, he takes it and he throws out the window. Like, this is what just, you should have done. Remove, like, remove it from the right, equation. Right. Like, you don't like, play yeah. the game. Like, that's yeah. that's yeah. the only way to win in a, a scenario like this is to not right. play. Right. And yeah. so I, I really like that. And I always believed, and I think what made that sequence so terrifying for me was that I, I really did think there somebody was going to blow up the other person. Mm-hmm. Right. But the Joker, being the Joker, I assumed that, Actually, they had the detonators for their own bombs or their Me own too. Right. Me right. too. And I think on a meta level, that makes it that much more like you think it could happen because that would also be a terrible outcome that the Joker would want. Yes. Which is another reason not to play the game and just throw it out the window. Right. You can't. You can't win. You can't know. Although well, that's I mean, almost too much like the Joker. Like, I'm going to teach him a lesson where it's like the Joker is like not interested in teaching anyone a lesson. He's just interested. Absolutely in- not. No, <laughs> Fair. No. Fair. Yeah. Well, but the public would never know who pulled the trigger necessarily. You know? Right. Um, but I was going to say, I mean, that sequence in the first viewing where you don't know what's going to happen, mm-hmm. like, is one of the most tense. Unbelievable. Like, Edge the, of your seat. The music when, like, the dude on the pasture ferry is picking it mm-hmm. up and, like, considering that turning guy. it. It's just like, yeah. It's, yeah. It Because it, it's like, it's so much like there's so many superhero or blockbuster finales where it just, you know, the outcome, you know, they're going to win. It's just a matter of like when, and it was so, it was such an, like an unnerving experience to be in a theater watching a blockbuster and have no freaking idea what's going to happen. Like mm-hmm. all the way up until like, that's like the second to last scene of the movie, you know, mm-hmm. it's nuts. I mean, the tension throughout this movie is absolutely unbearable. And yeah. a, a big a big part of that is the music, too. Um, I mean, and, the music. As, Can we just like music. Hans Zimmer and James Newton Howard. Remember when two of our greatest composers ever <laughs> just collaborated right. yeah. on this amazing score? Like, unreal. The thing that I love is that is how much in this movie, especially the music sounds like flapping. Like there's just this like the bat, yeah. the bat wings. yeah, like yeah. you know all this kind of stuff that I'm just like oh it's so freaking good, and that sound yeah. they got for the Joker where it's just all they got to do is start that Joker cue yeah and mm-hmm. you're immediately tense like oh something really bad's gonna happen right like that's all you need to know. Combined with everything else, I mean, like for me, I also can't get over the costume design. Like yeah, the costume design of the Joker's oh, costume yes. is so ridiculous those purple gloves mm-hmm. like 
Is it the part where we get to talk about Heath Ledger now? Can we please talk <laughs> yeah. about Heath Ledger now? Like yeah. everything about the way it's it's like how he's costumed, it's how the character is designed, which is all incredible. His leather purple leather gloves are ridiculous. They're so cool. But also everything about the way that Heath Ledger embodies the character. I was watching it and pulling it apart this time. It's ridiculous. The way that he holds his body. The way he it's moves. It's so like yeah. loose and disjointed where you feel like there's no structure to the Joker in the way that he stands or gestures or moves. And so like the scene where he goes to grab the champagne and he like sloshes all of it on the floor mm-hmm. basically and then tries to drink out of the thing. You get the feeling that Heath Ledger, it was like because he was having the way that he had determined to like move his limbs, that that, that just happened. Like there was this like, it's this loose kind of out of control movement in the way that he grabbed that glass, which is what resulted in that. I don't know, maybe he did it on purpose, but it's like every every single time that he moves, it creates that disjointed, sort of unpredictable, but like his voice mm, in oh this, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how it's in this high register and then it drops down to the lowest thing. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Just to terrify you. <laughs> right. Uh, yes, oh, yes. Oh my God. Well, I, I, love, I love what he's, he'll say like, uh, they'll cast you out like a leper. Like it's just <laughs> yes, this yes. all uh, over the place. Yeah. It, how is it all? It's so spontaneous and it's so, I mean, it's, it's like he embodied the idea of chaos in every aspect of his being. You know, mm. in his body language, in his voice, and just like he is pure chaos in this film, like down to the cellular level, which is what a commitment to a role. I mean, it's just it is it will always be legendary. You know, mm-hmm. it's just it's as well empowering as this performance. Yeah. Yeah. There's this moment that I can't get over now, which is during the like amazing tunnel chase where they're down on the you lower know, levels, lower fifth or whatever that's called. Um, and they're moving Harvey Dent. They have the doors open on the side of the truck and they're handing Joker bigger and bigger guns <laughs> to yeah. like shoot through the side. The way he holds those guns is so like they don't have any weight to them almost the way that he's carrying them where like he's shooting with this like it's not even curiosity and it's not like bravado at all. It's almost like he couldn't care less about the right. fact that he's like firing at the side of this armored vehicle. And as they give him bigger and bigger guns, they don't feel any weightier. Like when they give him the bazooka, it seems like he's just, again, mildly curious about what might happen if he fires it. It doesn't have any like oomph to it in the way that we see every other actor handle a gun ever. Well, because he's not like, he's not worried about precision at all. It's just like this no. is a machine that will send bullets that way. And like well, that opening like, scene in the bank, the way he shoots the final guy is right. kind of like he just flails his arm and like right. he's not even to looking. Hit him. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when he shoots, so he shoots the bazooka at the side of the thing and then something explodes and something like flies past him. I think like a car flies past him and he goes Huh. Like, yeah. What's well, the Batmobile? I think that, that, like, oh, that's yeah. the Batmobile like crushes the truck. Yeah. 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 It's and you can hear that they turned that comment from Heath Ledger up in the mix, mm. so we can hear this like, hmm. Yeah. It's just very low key. Yeah. It's so brilliant. Like, <laughs> can we do? Can we do a ten minute video that's like underrated moments of that performance? Because mm. we very easily could. Every, every moment. <laughs> right. Which is every be, yeah. <laughs> Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. 
For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. This is a just a fun little interjection where every time I watch that sequence, I remember I randomly was in Chicago doing a shoot uh, and we went out to get pizza and there was like all these like big trucks around. And so we asked like the waiter person, like, what's going on? And they're like, oh, they're they're shooting the new Batman here. And we're like, oh, wow. and so at like 3 a.m., we like went out and we're walking and, you know, there's those bridges in Chicago over, you know, the river thing. And so we went across and then we could see underneath and they were rehearsing like some of those moves for the car chase. And it was like Whoa. we got to see the Batmobile, the tumbler, like practicing to like drive up a ramp that was being like dragged or drug dragged, dragged, dragged behind, dragging, <laughs> dragging, it's being dragging <laughs> behind, uh, you know, some other truck that I think is is how they got it to do do right. that jump that like catches the bazooka or whatever <laughs> right yeah <laughs> anyway so it was just like this like spontaneous wild series of events that led us to spend hours at 3 a.m in chicago watching them like shoot that car chase sequence and it was magical Whoa. and just That's makes awesome. the whole thing that much more magical every time i see it that was also like that sequence in the film like especially when in in the imax screening right because like, that, that entire sequence is imax and like when there's that first half with, you know, the tumbler and the bazooka and, the, mm-hmm. and then his car, his tumbler is busted. And then one of the wheels pops out and it becomes a motorcycle. <laughs> and it's like so freaking cool. Like, right. I love so cool. like my favorite part of the Matrix Reloaded car chase is like the motorcycle stuff. There's something about motorcycle chases that I just find. They're like, just cooler. It's like it's like two times cooler than car chases. Right. Right. Yeah. Half the wheels twice as cool. And and the way <laughs> and like the way it even like the sequence ends where like he flips this truck in the most satisfying way and then <laughs> oh it's so and then good. his like period at the end of the sentence is like I'm gonna drive up this wall so I can turn yeah. around and like <laughs> right. slam down facing the opposite direction like it's the coolest like period at the it's, end of a car it's really chase. Fun. Well, and it's so great you were mentioning the mix. Trisha and so much of that yeah. sequence they take out the music like yes. after having right. the music there for so much oh, yeah. then it, it's gone it's just yeah. gone and it just makes it that much more intense and the tension is mm-hmm. that you, you don't feel safe there's nothing telling you what's going to happen the sound design in that sequence is amazing is amazing right. yeah. yeah um one thing about the sequence which there's a line there's two lines in this movie that I've always been like obsessed with which is at one point when Bruce is telling Lucius, like, I need you to do some cell phone stuff, some sonar stuff, like do it. And Lucius, Lucius is like, why? And he says, I'm playing this one close to the chest. Then at the end of the sequence, Gordon shows up. Surprise, I'm not dead. And then Harvey right. says to Gordon, you do like to play things close to the chest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I'm obsessed yes. with those lines because I feel like it must have what? been a case of an intended callback that then got rejiggered in the script where it was going to be the same two characters saying, you know, those two lines to each other. And then like dialogue got moved around and scenes changed and whatever. And then now it feels like this callback to where two characters who didn't hear the first two characters <laughs> say this are now responding to it, which is 
bizarre. Gordon is playing things close to the chest, maybe without that phrase in the beginning, because he's not giving away the bank names of that he wants raided. Right. There's that one scene, but I don't think he says that term. But it's the fact that one character says, like, I'm playing I'm playing yeah. this close to the chest, and the other character says, you do like to play things <laughs> right. close to the chest. Yeah, like, right, <laughs> that thing that somebody said to somebody else that I wasn't in earshot of earlier, I agree with. And I feel like this sequence also, we've just finished talking about how amazing it is, and I think it's also a perfect example of how this film is greater than the sum of its parts mm-hmm. because yeah. also throughout that scene you have annoying cop riding shotgun with Gordon <laughs> oh, so right. yeah. just like giving commentary about like I didn't sign up for this air cab that's what we need <laughs> yeah oh that's not good that's not good right like it's so he's <laughs> right. so annoying and so bad and once the scene is over i've erased him from my memory such right. that i'm surprised every time i watch it me too i was like has this guy always been talking? <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> was he added but the other thing about this sequence is we talked last time about how blade runner was the movie that nolan had everyone watch to sort of prepare for batman begins and the movie for dark knight was heat and oh, I just, again, right. really appreciate yeah. the sort of like, we are taking a different kind of genre, uh, but we are applying sort of that designing principle to our movie. And weirdly, we'll talk about this more next week, but like weirdly, that was never released for Dark Knight Rises. If there was like the sort of one mm. movie that they were like, we're, we're mm. going for this. But I just appreciate that that Heat was, uh, Heat and Michael Mann in general, he said, was like his uh, his inspiration for this. Is anybody bothered by changing aspect ratios? So I, I am if they're changing too rapidly. I uh-huh. think yeah. I think it works when when Nolan commits to like this scene is IMAX in its entirety. So like now you're going to be in IMAX land for a while. Right. But there are movies like Interstellar and it's a lot other Christopher Nolan films where there'll be like these random shots interjected. Right. And it happens in Dark Knight as well, um, where it just goes to two, three, five aspect ratio for like a second and then back to IMAX. Right. And it's like, I get that that's what happened in the edit, but maybe in that case, like make a little portion of this all two, three, five and right. throw some bars on it. Yeah. It's <laughs> right. like, it's okay. Yeah. To just like make it a bit of a smoother experience without like rapidly going back and forth. But I know in interstellar, there's some scenes where it's like cross cutting and, and, and it doesn't even make sense that it's IMAX. It's like Jessica Chastain is inside her, like, vehicle in two three five right. and then we cut to outside the vehicle as she drives like through some corn and that's right. imax and then back into the vehicle and it's two three five and it's like her driving through the corn isn't like imax worthy like that we don't like we don't need that part to be imax if it's the only shot in this sequence that is imax well and i, I do like in the dark night that there there are there's that one sequence that isn't actiony like right so after rachel's died and it's kind of doing yeah. that like wrapping up maybe mm-hmm. this is the end of the movie feel that is an IMAX and it's just you know people in domestic spaces and you know Alfred burning the letter and stuff that still has an emotional effect by switching to IMAX so it, it doesn't just have to be epic things but like yeah be more choosy right because right. I, I think I think what's cool about it is it can be used as a storytelling tool essentially like like in the example you just gave of you know this is now I don't know kind of a more uh, like meaningful or like pivotal sequence. Like this is the moment everybody kind of like lean forward, pay attention. This is the big, this is the big moment. Um, But once again, yeah, if it's just, Hey, we happen to get some of this B roll in IMAX. So every time we use a piece of it, let's cut to it. That's where right. it bothers me. 
Yeah, like Grand Budapest Hotel actually cuts between three different aspect ratios for the three different timelines that are existing in the movie. So it's like, okay, at least you're doing a storytelling thing with it. Mm -hmm. But the reason why it annoys me in particular is because a friend of mine has a projector screen that he built himself. It's like 97 inches or something. And he has like black masking on the top and bottom of it that he can just pick up and move whether we're watching like a one eight six movie or a one sorry one <laughs> wow this is a very specific problem <laughs> right a one eight five movie or a two three five movie um, which means that when you watch The Dark Knight you have to have the whole thing in one eight five and have like grayish lines because projector sends like white light you yeah. know to the thing uh, so yeah it's a specific problem but it's also like when you go to a movie theater they change the screen based on uh, you know like you watch the the cur- the um the sort of masking come up or down based on the aspect ratio of the movie. So that means when you're watching a movie that changes aspect ratios, you're watching some percentage of the movie, often a high percentage of the movie in just like the wrong, with just like bars that you're seeing for no reason. I don't know. Stop doing it, people. (laughs) The thing that I do love about Nolan's use of IMAX is that if you go see it in a proper IMAX theater, it is a special experience. And, and I just, yeah, I, my recommendation, because he's going to listen to us and our recommendations. Uh, <laughs> yes, my, definitely my will. request and recommendation, Christopher Nolan, is that I love what you do with IMAX. Just please like commit, as we've been saying, you know, and if, if it doesn't work out where you can use it consistently through a sequence, then like Michael said, throw some bars on it. <laughs> right. Well, and I think at the end of the day, the fact that this conversation is one that we are having and we are huge nerds, <laughs> Um, is the lesson is kind of most people don't care, like truly. Sure. Most people, like your average moviegoer, is not going to really mind as long as you're telling a or notice story. Even. Like right, right. They they might not even notice. Truthfully, um, and I think that is something that Nolan is knows well and is counting right. on, which is like the momentum of his films, particularly The Dark Knight is going to overshadow any sort of like, it's not going to feel disjointed. You're along for the ride. Your average moviegoer is going to be way more hooked into the story and the characters and the themes than they are anything technical. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Your your average moviegoer is not a huge film nerd. They're not here to like marvel at the cinematography. Maybe they'll notice and appreciate like a great costume or a, a wonderful score. Like that's kind of the maximum thing that you can expect from like your average moviegoer different levels of film nerds like care about different things but i'm a huge film nerd and honestly i'm willing to forgive a lot of technical stuff like technical choices that i may or may not agree with technical choices that i may or may not even notice and i'm here to forgive it if it is serving the story and characters or at least not distracting from it. right uh, and I definitely think that's the case here. Yeah, I, I just, I guess I'm not worried about the average moviegoer. I'm worried about the average film goer. Uh, <laughs> no! Final thing the voice. Let's just talk about the voice for a minute. Because <laughs> I'm nowhere in hockey pads. What was fascinating watching Batman Begins recently was seeing kind of the evolution of the voice. Because right. yeah, in definitely. Batman Begins, even when he's in costume sometimes, he's still, like, he still kind of like tries to sound menacing, but he's not always in like extreme gravelly intensity except for when he's like threatening someone like when he's holding the guy upside down and threatening him he's like full-on you know swear to me yeah but in the dark knight they kind of made the choice of like no that is like the always on voice with like when mm-hmm. you when you're a batman your voice stays in this zone 
which is a problem, I think, later in the film when he has like some long lines of right. dialogue to deliver, like com mm -hmm. like complex thoughts that have to be <laughs> delivered in this like incredibly like, di like this like difficult voice to maintain. You know, so right. he's like, "The people of Gotham just showed you how alone." <laughs> You really are like, I guess it's, you can hear Christian Bale have to like pause to like take a breath to like finish the sentence because he's like so much is going into every part of the sentence. And, and so it's, there's some parts later on, like in the in the very end of the movie, when they're standing over like Harvey Two-Face, like he has to like say very long statements that are kind of like this is the end of the movie. This is like the point of everything. Right. And it, I wish they could just let him be a person like <laughs> like no. like you're with like you're with the person you trust the most now like you're with Commissioner gordon like mask your voice a little bit maybe but does it have to be i feel like it actually takes away from the power of what the line would be if you could have just said it without like the like turn up turn up to 11 alex it, yeah. christian bale has a weird mouth <laughs> and if batman just spoke like christian bale everyone would be like oh it's bruce wayne <laughs> well and in that moment, it doesn't help that it's like he's been stabbed, he's injured, he's sure. exhausted, and it's a very dark. So, like, all you can really do is like look at his mouth, and like, so <laughs> right. I feel like there's just a lot of things working against him in that right. in that particular right. moment. I do think part of the thing, and you talked about this in the last uh, podcast that we did, Alex. Part of the thing that makes Bruce Wayne feel lost in this is that he's in the Batman suit for like. I don't know. It feels like 90% of this movie. Right. And so we don't get to see his eyes very much or his face really. Mm. Like he does a couple of Bruce Wayne things, but he's really in the suit for the bulk of this movie. Um, and it's not just that like his performance is being covered up by the mask or that he's disguising and doing the Batman voice, which is distracting. It's that also it masks literally masks his vulnerability that mm. I think we need from our heroes. Right. Where imagine like the end of any other action movie after the final battle, we see how weakened the hero is. The hero is bleeding. The hero is hurt. Like even thinking back to like Avengers movies at the end of like the first Avengers, people are hurt. There are consequences. Like they're, you know, they're fine, essentially. Like Iron Man falls down out of the portal at the beginning, at the end of the first Avengers movie. But like his suit's kind of broken. He's unconscious. He's hurt. He's bleeding. Heroes have blood on their faces. And even though Batman falls off like a four story building or whatever, <laughs> and there for a second, he's like, is Batman okay? And then he gets up and he is okay. <laughs> but we don't see the weakness manifest because of the way that he's costumed. Right. And I think it does steal some of our relationship with the character or the way that we sympathize with the character because there's a human in there, but it's a little bit hard to see just because of the nature of the bat suit. Right. Yeah. It would be like Iron Man if we didn't have the inside the helmet shots. Yeah. You know, right. which are like, oh, we right. get to see Robert Downey Jr.'s face now, you know? And it's like if if Batman suddenly like, I really miss my parents, it would be like, oh, that's not I don't I don't sympathize with <laughs> yeah. you at this moment. Yeah. Exactly. And and when we were talking about Civil War, we talked about that moment where he gets half his where Iron Man gets half his face ripped, mm -hmm. like mask ripped off. And we see how vulnerable he really like Tony Stark really mm -hmm. is inside of his suit. And so I think there's a lot of reasons that the character of Bruce Wayne gets overshadowed in this 
entry into the franchise. And it's this. And so it's just the nature of the bat suit, I guess, is is one of them as well. In addition to obviously Heath Ledger's insane performance that is just like I it's unbelievable. <laughs> um, but and all of the other, like, you know, this is a movie and a half, so there's a ton of plot in it. It's this got this intense structure where it never lets up, all the stuff that we've been talking about, in addition to there's not a lot of an arc for Bruce Wayne. He's like puzzling out a mystery, but he's not really like searching his soul. It doesn't feel like in the same way. They try to do it, where he's like, what can you endure? What can Bruce Wayne? Well, Batman has no limitations. They like try to do it, but we already know there's not an arc in the sense that we know what Batman is fighting for. And it's not like he's fighting for something different by the end, or it's not like he's necessarily discovered something different about himself by the end. He's accomplished his goal. It's not the same quite as a character arc. Well, I guess the one thing I would say about that is he is positioned in the first half of the film as wanting to retire but the Batman, you know, character. I mean, he, right, for, so he can be with Rachel. Rachel. Yeah. And that's yeah. also kind of a problem is just like there are few scenes together. There's not uh, amazing chemistry happening. So you're not, you don't have that like deep want and desire for them to be together at least i don't watching this film I, mm-hmm. i'm not i'm not really like watching to see if they're going to end up together um so that's, yeah there's a yeah. few missed opportunities here in the writing of rachel dawes mm-hmm. which I, i'm not gonna get like i'm not gonna go on a rant about it but you know just thinking about all the marvelous agencies she had as a character at the beginning of Batman Begins, <laughs> <laughs> before they knock her unconscious twice and are like, you're you're done fighting crime now. And um, anyway, but that in this movie, there's just, they do virtually, like she hardly gets to make any choices. Like her choices, are you going to marry Harvey Dent? That's kind of her only right, choice right. in the entire thing, which is like, okay, that's, a choice that potentially would affect Batman if he ever knew about it, but he never does. (laughs) So what choices are you giving Rachel Dawes in this? Actually, the one choice she does make that is awesome is when she steps out of the crowd in Bruce's fundraiser and says, okay, stop to the Joker, which is the raddest moment for her character. Mm. And Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance in that scene where... The Joker has her face. So good. And she's like trying Mm -hmm. not to look at him. And her eyes are like rolling up because she's trying to like pull her face out of his hand is so disturbing and amazing. Like she's awesome in that. Yeah. That's also a scene where I think, you know, because for obvious reasons, they weren't able to do like uh, voiceover ADR for some of the scenes with the Joker. They Mm -hmm. had to use production audio. And I feel like you can really feel the production yes. audio where you can feel people like shifting and somebody drops yeah. something in the background and there's mm-hmm. like coughing. And I feel like they just kind of leaned into it in the sound design to it makes make it better, it that mm-hmm. much more tense. And then yes, like you're saying, Trisha, like Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance in that is so, so good. That, it's so raw. That moment is it's, so, yeah. yeah. I mean, it does end up ultimately being a plot device because she is no longer actually fighting crime like she was in Batman Begins. They have to put her into the path of the Joker. So they give her this choice, which does make her character cool, but ultimately is a device to put her into the path of the Joker. Because otherwise she would absolutely not be in his crosshairs at all, except maybe as the girlfriend of Harvey Dent. I don't know. I mean, she's like, she's like in court with him and she's like, 
in- interrogating people. I don't think they like take away all of her. She she is not doing it in the second half of the movie, but she's trying to. She's like in the office with the papers, and he's like, "Go home, it's too dangerous." <laughs> I really do like her vest in those. That's a cool she's vest. She's got a great vest. Yes. There you yeah. go. She wears a vest. For as much as I like how much uh, Nolan took from Michael Mann for this movie. Maybe the one thing he shouldn't have taken was like, women don't matter. <laughs> they don't really yeah. exist or need to be in my movies. Yeah. And you guys are going to get to talk about The Dark Knight Rises, right. which, yeah, I'm very sad to say that I won't be here yeah. for that. But it's going to be a wonderful podcast. We will have a guest. We have a special guest. You guys are having a guest. I know. Yeah. Um, but sad to not hear. Because like, oh, my God, there's so many things. There's, There's so many, so many, many things. I still want a patron-exclusive Trisha rant. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah, I mean, well, and so, like, again, there's so much to talk about with The Dark Knight. We've been talking for a long time. I feel like yeah. there's still some, like, mm. the first yeah. 40 minutes of this movie are, like, a different movie where he's, like, he goes to, goes to Hong, Hong Kong. Kong <laughs> and there's, like, the Mission Impossible 3 sequence where he's, like, jumping. Yeah. Mission Impossible! <laughs> just, like, straight Mission Impossible. Well, just like Mission Impossible, the midpoint of this movie is sort of a heist to, like, just yep. like Fallout, like to get a, a character. Yeah. yeah. So they, they yeah. stole from MI3 and then Fallout stole from them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, that's right. I forgot Fallout where it's literally. Oh, God. It's, yeah. it's like literally like a swap van underneath the bridge right. by the water. Yeah. Right. It's the whole. <laughs> it's crazy to me for as much as they make about Mr. Lau in the first half of this movie or like the first third of this movie. He dies sitting on top of that giant pile of money. <laughs> And they don't even show a shot of it. Right. right. I wasn't even like sure if he died because like, but I guess he's still up there. So Right. <laughs> he's sitting on top of this mountain of money, which the Joker is going to burn. And they've he's been in a huge character up until this point. And when the Joker like goes to get him in jail, they're like, no one could protect him in here. And sure enough, you can't because the Joker's going to get him out of there. And then he's like in a very wide shot on top of that pile of money. <laughs> The Joker sets it on fire, which we get an angle of from the bottom of the pyramid of money. And then we never cut to Mr. Lau ever. We don't even hear like the screams of a burning person. Too much. I don't know. No, you don't. I really want the last thing I'll say is I just I really want a prequel uh, to this where we get to see Alfred's previous life where he was like looking for criminals in Burma and burning down forests. Like, like, (laughs) listen, are you what? I saw I saw a child play. With a ruby, the size of a tangerine. All right, and some men just want to watch the world burn. It's like, what was his previous life that he has this experience? And now he is now he's a butler. You know, there's a series called Pennyworth, right? It's all an Alfred prequel. No, I did not know that. Yes. Oh, okay. You can Great. you can watch that right now. Okay. I just want the Nolan version right. of sure. it though, like, and the Michael Caine right. version. Of I love it. Michael Caine's dadness. Which... He's like a very nice man. Told me that he could have these shipped out tomorrow, and he could <laughs> oh, no, pay cash. It's fine. <laughs> and we still haven't talked about Michael Caine. We did this in the Batman Begins. He's so perfect. Can you talk about it to death, please? In the Dark Knight Rises. Yeah, we're gonna talk about the Prestige also Great. for the right. Right. exclusive. So there's there's oh, yes. plenty oh, good. of okay. Michael Caine too. I get to talk about him in the yes. Prestige. Yep. Okay, yes. great. I was going to say, I like how that, that scene concludes. This is the final thing about this scene. That scene concludes like very abruptly with him just saying that like, we burned the forest down. And which I just made me think yeah. like, so you, like, was that worth it? You you like burned like a rainforest <laughs> to stop a dude who was like stealing some rubies. <laughs> like, like that makes me like kind of question you, Michael Caine. Like what? I don't think you understand. They were the size of a tangerine. <laughs> 
it's an interesting choice of word. I mean, it's, I I get I get the like idea that you have to like burn everything down to stop the bad guy, but but if what the bad guy wants is to watch the world burn, right? And wouldn't You're he helping. be excited about yeah. the fact that you burned the forest down? I think that's a cautionary. T- I feel like the end of the story is a cautionary. T- I don't know when we when Christopher Nolan does the prequel series with Michael Caine doing motion capture for a weird CG version of a younger him. We'll get all the answers. <laughs> And the, the climax will be watching watching the rainforest burn. Guys, I'm upset. I really want to rewatch Lord of the Rings, but ever since we set this Patreon goal, where once we hit 500 patrons, we'll do three Lord of the Rings episodes and a Patreon-exclusive episode on The Hobbit, I decided I should wait and hold off until we hit our goal. So I need your help, listener. We're about three quarters of the way there, which means we're tiptoeing past the Black Gate and making our way to the secret stairs of Carathungle. So it's up to you to help us fight off the big freaking spider, make our way through a sea of orcs, do a little dance with Gollum, and drop this thing in the fires of Mount Doom once and for all. I knew what every term he just said meant. I saw your (laughs) face light up. It was so adorable. (laughs) (laughs) I want to watch the movie now. I'm speechless, and I'm with you. I want to watch these movies so badly. Please hurry up, Patreon. We if need I this. don't rewatch these movies, I really won't have any idea what any of that meant. Why didn't the birds just fly them there? <laughs> <laughs> They're eagles. I can't wait to talk to you guys about that on this podcast. Eagles are birds. <laughs> they do what they want. Awesome. So why don't we go around and talk about what we what lessons we're taking away from The Dark Knight. Brian, do you want to start us off? Sure. Um, Alex talks about how he likes when movies make it difficult for the protagonist. Um, and <laughs> I like that this movie makes it difficult for the audience, uh, which we've spoken about plenty. But just like No Country for Old Men, it's this sort of feeling of things aren't cut and dry and easy. Real life has people who kill for no reason, people who die for no reason. Like, it's just that's the the way the world works. And granted, we don't watch we don't want too much real life in our drama you know and, and i think that's mm-hmm. that's what you, as you were saying earlier trisha it's like we go to movies to like forget about real life you know and and to like escape a little bit the fact that a superhero film of all things can grapple with that truth and truly not let us off the hook by explaining mm-hmm. a villain's b- backstory or you know conveniently making it so the villain never actually kills anybody but we just know he's a bad guy or like we we hear about someone he kills but we never see or whatever you know the sort of pg version of uh, of that and it, dark knight is pg13 which seems so weird to me that like they're like we can't say like the f word but we can show <laughs> just like the most upsetting things in a movie and like that's pg13 it's fine but but yeah i just appreciate like how as we talked about most of this episode just how hard this movie goes with just saying like look this is how the world is and it's more it's more valuable maybe for us to put that out there and to deal with it than it is to just spend two and a half hours ignoring that this is the way life is yeah yeah (laughs) somber yep (laughs) i know that's i mean that's what gives it a little bit of that film film in there (laughs) trisha lesson I want to talk about, just for a second, about the three different explanations that we hear. We actually only hear two different explanations about the Joker's scars Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that we hear from uh, the character in this movie. And I think it really speaks to the power of, like, don't tell, basically, or Mm -hmm. don't explain. This idea that 
something that is unknown to us is often like scarier or more just dis- more disturbing. Um, and and this movie embodies that in a few different ways. Like when you when we think about the most upsetting sort of things in it, and part of it is because it's PG thirteen. But just tacking onto what you were saying, Brian, like the things that upset me the most are things that I never really see, like that that scene with the tryouts where mm-hmm. he like smashes the cool cue in half and like throws the thing on the ground. We don't see what happens at the end of that scene, but we don't need to. And in fact, earlier in that scene where he's got the knife in the um the gangster's mouth, right? And he's telling the story about what happened, one of his versions of the story about what happened to his face. Right. We don't see him like cut that guy's face, which we assume he does or like kill him whatever he does. It's over mm. there, it's like the the suggestion that something horrible. Hans is Zimmer tells you without that, actually, <laughs> yeah, right. right? Sure, yeah. There's that <laughs> yeah. sound or whatever in the score, but I just think it's a good screenwriting lesson. Like, imply that something terrible happened. The different versions of the story are doing something thematic. Where I'm talking about, does the truth really matter? Or do you really want to know the truth? Right, that kind of question. Having the character offer different versions that tell us, okay, none of these is the truth. But in the middle of somewhere of all of them is the truth is very instructive, I think, because even if you're not writing a character who's a liar, no one really is telling the exact truth. Thinking of that as like just a note for all characters, like don't let them tell you the exact Mm -hmm. truth, right? If they're describing an event in their past, it's going to be filtered through whatever they want you or don't want you to know about it. And at the same time, from a filmmaking point of view, Sometimes we don't want to exactly see the truth. We'd rather yeah. imagine it. Um, Th- there's yeah. minor spoiler for Last of Us Part Two. I won't actually get into details, but there's a moment where Ellie needs some information from somebody and you see her start to try to get it and she can't get it. And then basically we cut to a later scene where she then is with her her friends again, her partner, and she she just has complete like panic in her eyes. And she says, I... I made her tell me and like, you know what I mean? And like, that's so much more upsetting than if you had actually yeah. seen it happen. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, it's that two plus two thing we talked about in the no country mm-hmm. for old men. Right. And, and yeah, right. I, I, the fact that the Joker tells two different stories about his backstory and we're left to decide what of any of it is true is, is so much more telling as you were saying than actually yeah. giving those details. And I, I think about that every time. It's mm-hmm. very, very smart. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Alex? Kind of on the same theme as you guys, I think the lesson I took away from this film is people are smart and they can enjoy a smart, complicated adult movie in in large numbers. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> right. like and, and I think part of why it works is because it's operating on different levels. Like you have the undeniable, just like gut level tension and fear and uh, stakes and you know, the there's there's those kind of gut level things that pull you through, even if you can't follow the convoluted mob, like money racketeering <laughs> stuff. stuff like you know, that's stuff I only got in the second or third viewing, you know, if at all, you know, but <laughs> but you can have like a, essentially a kind of a complex crime drama uh, and and people aren't going to tune out if the fundamentals are also there that 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 are why you watch a story of those gut level things. And so I think I think the lesson is that if you can if you can provide that that deep uh visceral experience then like christopher nolan does this all the time you know inception is a great example of this yeah then 
audiences will go with your overly convoluted, crazy, insane, like story world. Like, like they can, they can deal with it if you're pulling them through with an emotional, like gut level story. Mm-hmm. So, so I, 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 I would love to see more movies with lots of money and budgets attempt the Christopher Nolan thing, which is go for that story world that is maybe like it, it could be alienating to people who are looking for a very simple experience. Just go for it because a lot of people want that. A lot of it, it, it's actually a broad desire right. for inception type story yeah. worlds. It's not a niche thing. Um, yeah, so. we do. We like to be challenged. Right. People like to be challenged. We like, we like challenging ideas. Yeah. yeah. And I think Dark Knight yeah. is a perfect example of that. It's like one of the biggest blockbusters of all time. It's like a super adult complicated story. <laughs> it's, mm-hmm. yeah. it's not dumbed down in the least. Yeah, it definitely does not feel like a kid's movie <laughs> in the no. way that... Or, or even just like a movie. broad blockbuster movie, you know, because you'll see movies that mm-hmm. aren't meant for like kids necessarily, but they still feel like they've been oversimplified down just to get that mass market appeal. And I don't think people need that. I think people are smarter than that. Well, and that kind of transitions into my lesson too, where I think coming off of The Dark Knight, first of all, every movie tried to be The Dark Knight and tried <laughs> to copy The Joker. And there was just so much of that. Catch the bad guy, put him in a glass cage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, but I feel like there's also this this kind of simplification that happens when someone comes up with something unique. People kind of grab on to, well, what's the most obvious thing that's different? And then try to like copy paste that. And I think for The Dark Knight, it was this idea of like a dark superhero movie. And so I feel like, mm. the, you know, not to start the ragging on the DC universe, but uh-huh. so a <laughs> lot of superhero films after that tried to be really dark in these kind of stylistic ways without bringing along these kind of more fundamental storytelling thematic challenging things that are actually what makes it disturbing like the cinematography and the style is there and amplifies it but it's the situations the choices and the genius design of the antagonist which like you can't the joker's just too good you can't recreate the joker like he's just he's so good so i think that's yeah, just an observation. And I think, of course, my lesson has to be about designing the antagonist. Uh, and it just, this film is such a great, it lays bare all these things that like in a perfect world, you could have an antagonist that is like disrupting the story world thematically and attacking the weaknesses of your protagonist and competing for the same goal, like all the things that are in the video. I think it's it's a really fun movie to have as an example of if your antagonist can be doing some of these things, you're probably on the right track, which is mm-hmm. pretty cool. Yeah. To really quick look, go for what you're saying about like the copycat thing. I think it's so bizarre. I, I understand studios are like trying to get money. They're trying to capitalize off like a whatever's popular kind of thing. But I just think it's so bizarre that nine times out of 10, the thing that becomes the big exciting thing it's exciting because it's new because we right. haven't seen it. Right. And then the studios are yeah. like, well, let's just do what they did. But again, and it's like, but if the Lego movie was exciting, the emoji movie is not going to do that same <laughs> thing. Like it doesn't work that way. You can't just say they did something fresh and original. Let's do it now again. Yeah. Like that's, that's completely yeah. against the freaking logic of it. But yeah, that's a whole other episode. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but to kind of transition to the, the what are we watching, I can do a, a little handoff here where one of the things I love about the Joker is that he takes literal psychological 
you know, experiments like the prisoner's dilemma mm-hmm. and makes that part of his evil plan. So it's mm-hmm. literally taking these impossible situations and making the protagonist have to choose. And that's just immediately compelling. And I recently listened to a podcast. I've been doing a lot of podcast talking or recommendations recently. I, I have been watching movies, but this one connects. So I'm going to do this <laughs> my last podcast one where it was a, a radio lab called Tit for Tat that is about the prisoner's dilemma. So, you know, there are these hmm. two bank robbers, hypothetically, that get arrested. If neither one of them rats on the other, they both go away for six months. If one of them rats, then the one that rats gets zero time in prison and the other gets 10 years in prison. So there's this like high incentive to right. rat on the other or blow up the other mm-hmm. uh, fairy, as right. it were. Uh-huh. Uh, and so what's interesting about this episode is they talk about in the 60s, I think the late 60s, uh, this computer programmer. Uh, had a a competition basically where he asked people to write computer programs basically simple algorithms that would play each other in this prisoner's dilemma and then they ranked what was the most successful approach to the prisoner's dilemma just kind of in a fundamental like evolution way like if you're always going to do one thing or follow one set of rules if you're in this prisoner's dilemma what is the best thing as far as like minimal time served for everybody and it's really interesting i'm not going to give away what happens because you need to listen to it. <laughs> after all that how dare but it's really it's it's just it's a really fascinating kind of it, it forces you to think about what do we think about it as as humans mm-hmm. and morality and our society and what is a purely objective uh take on it and how do you feel about the the technique that is the one that is the optimal so Everyone go listen to it and let me know what you think. Interesting. Trisha, what have you been watching? I watched a lovely documentary from last year, from 2019, called The Booksellers, um, directed and edited by D.W. Young, who's a documentarian that's done a few other things that uh, you can look up. I really, really like this. It's about rare and antiquarian book dealers and... Um, kind of about how like changing technology and like perception of books has changed their business. Um, and it's all in New York. So it's, it's all very specifically like kind of this one circle of book dealers, um, who like sort of all know each other. And, you know, a lot of them are like older people who have been in the business a really long time, but it's really, really fascinating. And and just kind of lovely look at people who think about the object of the book quite a lot Hmm. and like what it means to us as a society and like historically how books have been valued or not valued in different um, by different generations and in different times and like what books sort of represent to us psychologically. And like, it's really, really fascinating. It's great. Um, it was produced by Parker Posey, uh, who I really love, who does some narrating in it. And uh, there's a, a like recurring series of interviews with Fran Lebowitz, um, who is just what, like she's the best part of it. She's hilarious and awesome. Uh, but then, yeah, just it, tons of interviews. It's really well cut together. Uh, tons of interviews with like these book dealers and and just kind of interesting to think about what's going to happen with all of our books. Mm-hmm. Like. And they have a ton of amazing interviews with Susan Orlean oh, as wow. well, who is Her like... Her Twitter game has been pretty amazing lately. <laughs> oh, Susan Orlean, God bless. Yeah. Anyway, it, it's great. It's called The Booksellers, so you can nice. check it out. 
sounds really interesting. It does. I do feel like I have an emotional reaction to like the symbol of a book that feels like reptilian yeah. brain almost, but that doesn't right. make sense because we yeah. didn't have that when we were. So yeah, that sounds really interesting. Brian, what have you been watching? Well, something I think about a lot is what's my favorite Ian Holm, Chris Tucker movie? <laughs> and what? I think it's probably The Fifth Element, uh, which also happens to be the only one. Um, well played. Now, I uh, I recently did a, a little Luc Besson 90s double feature of The Fifth nice. Element and Leon Colon, The Professional. Of course. Yeah. Uh, I also love The Messenger, The Story of Joan of Arc, but I did not rewatch that or have not yet, let's say. But uh, yeah, just these movies are wonderful. Both have Gary Oldman villains, uh, you know, speaking of Dark Knight. Also, what a joy he Tiny is. Lister, who plays the prisoner who throws the thing out the window, is the president in Fifth Element, and he's great. And uh, it's just, it, it's amazing that these two movies were made back to back by the same filmmaker because they're so damn different. I think that Fifth Element holds up as just one of the most fun movies to just throw on and every moment is just a joy and just crazy and silly and hilarious and a good time. Mm -hmm. And then the professional is just still one of the best movies ever. I think it's just, it's so good. It's, it's like also one of those movies. that's like a little upsetting and deals with things that you're like, I'm not comfortable with this, but, uh, (laughs) but yeah, I mean, um, Natalie Portman is amazing in it at like, yeah. 12 or however old, she, however old she was at the time and uh jean renault is fantastic and you've got little Always. danny aiello and then of course like i said just gary old gary olden is a villain like that's why i love book of eli i don't care you can come at me but like <laughs> gary olden as a villain is just makes every movie great so yeah if you haven't watched the development or the professional in a long time what are you time. doing if <laughs> yeah. you haven't watched those yeah cool alex what have you been watching I am finally checking out Avatar The Last Airbender. This is nice. on Netflix. Oh. Um, and we've had a lot of uh, viewers, listeners of uh, LTS and the podcast uh, kind of requested as a thing to talk about. Um, and I've also just heard from friends. And I was actually uh, doing an outdoor uh, film shoot earlier this week with a bunch of Gen Z actors. Wow. And they were literally going around like talking about what kind of like, are you, would you be like a firebender or a waterbender or... Like, which character would you be? Like, that was like one of their, like, we're going to get to know each other kind of things. Because they'd all, like, grown up with Avatar The Last Airbender. Like, I guess in 2007, if you were watching Nickelodeon, we're probably watching it. Um, So it's a really, it's a cultural thing that I think maybe a lot of us, like, millennials and on aren't really plugged into. And I kind of just want to be now. And it's just so acclaimed. And I just don't, I have no idea, like, what it is, really. So anyway. All those reasons, I'm finally watching it. Uh, so far, it's it's like very charming. It's actually it's I kind of thought because it's so acclaimed, it'd be kind of self serious or like on like a very serious cartoon. But it's uh, it's got these kind of goofy, charming characters, and I'm not sure what to make of it so far. And I I it has you know a few it's three seasons. They each have like twenty something episodes, so there's a lot of lot to come. I'm just very curious to see where it goes and how it became this like cultural phenomenon. Um, and there's a lot of chatter now about the live action remake at Netflix, which has some controversy now because the original creators have left, mm-hmm. which it's like, right. then I guess don't make it. <laughs> like, right. Because it's yeah. usually not a good sign. That's like a bad idea. <laughs> anyway, so yeah, I am, I am intrigued. I'm enjoying it so far. It's very charming. And I'm curious to see where it goes next. 
Yeah, well, you'll nice. have to report back once once it's all done. Will do. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation on The Dark Knight. We'll be back next week talking about The Dark Knight Rises with a guest. It's going to be fun. And there is the patron-exclusive episode coming on The Prestige, so lots of Christopher Nolan going around. Thank you, as always, to the patrons for making this show possible, and we'll see you in the next episode. Bye. Bye, everybody. The size of a tangerine. Bye. Bye.